My name is Greg Rolls, and joining me in the studio is Michaela Stubbs for a special Election Day episode of the Radioactive Show. It is Federal Election Day, and joining us today is Senator for Western Australia and Green Spokesperson for Foreign Affairs, Communication, Housing, Sustainable Facilities and Nuclear Issues, Senator Scott Ludlam. We're talking to him about the Greens' policy on nuclear issues, militarism and the US alliance. Good morning, Senator Ludlam. Good morning, and hopefully some cheerful stuff as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let's see how we go. All right. Firstly, Scott, I know the Greens has a great policy of aiming towards a nuclear-free future. And I just thought I'd start with the beginning of the nuclear chain with uranium mining and export. Now, Greens policy is a cessation of, of those things. I was wondering, yeah, what would that look like? Well, the industry is in the process of phasing itself out, which is extraordinary, and you probably couldn't have got away with saying that even 10 years ago, but the the shape of the domestic uranium mining industry in Australia at the moment is in a pretty sick place, which is extraordinary. The Roxby Downs expansion uh, to an open-cut mine never went ahead. Uh, Ranger is absolutely on its knees in Kakadu National Park. It looks increasingly like Jabaluka will never be mined. The whole range of in-situ leach mines in South Australia, two small operations got on their feet and they're, they're barely staying in business. So the industry is in pretty sick shape. What that means is if we have a proper transition plan for the, the really big operations, Roxby being the most significant one, to actually transition out of, um, of uranium processing and they can keep mining the gold and the silver if that's their thing, Um, but actually closing the uranium circuit down, then Australia could actually be uranium-free in a matter of years. So I think the industry was in really sick shape even before 3.11 in Japan, but obviously the the disaster at Fukushima has smashed confidence in the industry worldwide, and that's apart from all the amazing work that the movement does to slow the progress of the industry, it's also the technology is its own worst enemy. Hmm. Regarding the mine rehabilitation, so we've got Ranger now, which is um, finished up with the mining. And obviously, yeah, like we're looking really closely at what they're going to do as far as rehabilitating that site um, to make it fit to to include back in Kakadu National Park, how can government ensure that that happens? Well, I don't think they can. Um, to be honest, we took a, we took a, um, a look over the ranger site um, late last year with some representatives of the Conjaintme Aboriginal Corporation. It's a massive operation, and they're operating in a rectangle carved out of the boundaries of a World Heritage Area and an incredibly important cultural area for people who've been occupying that place for thousands and thousands of years. The idea that you could seriously take that incredible disruption and seal it up and as though it was never there, I find a bit mind-boggling. But nonetheless, it's actually the legal obligation to do that and to contain the mine wastes for a period of not less than 10,000 years. It's the only uranium mine in the world that I know of that has that license condition attached to it. Now, they're already failing at that because there's already contaminated uh, water falling out of the bottom of the tailings dam and making its way into, into regional groundwater. 
So it's a formidably difficult thing to do to clean up a project of that scale. Nonetheless, uh, Rio Tinto, which is ultimately the parent company um, that owns that site, uh, quite apart from the fact that Yvonne Margarula and her family actually owns that site, the company uh, has uh, set aside some money and they say that they are committed to a proper and thorough rehabilitation. And so now it's up to them. It's up to the government to be standing behind them, watching absolutely everything that they do through the expertise that's there in the office of the supervising scientists. But now the onus is on the company and the mining industry around the country has a pretty sad legacy of cutting and running when the money stops flowing or when prices drop or whatever. And we can't afford them to, to, to do that in Kakadu. So now I guess the really hard work begins. Mm, yeah. And as far as the um, medical compensation for workers in uranium mines, now uranium, we sometimes compare it to asbestos in the same way that the, the industry is going to have, you know, the potential long-term health impacts, but it's much less easy to prove that link to the illness. And I'm just wondering, yeah, how would, how would that work? It is really difficult, and workers in the asbestos mines at Whitnoom and elsewhere discovered that even though there was actually a relatively straightforward cause-and-effect relationship between exposure to asbestos and contracting mesothelioma, the industry still fought tooth and nail to try and prevent a dollar going out in compensation to the people, to the workforce and those in the township who were dying. With uranium, it's even harder because the medical community established decades ago that uh, it's impossible to prove which exposure caused which cancer. It's like trying to prove which cigarette actually kicked off the, the lung cancer that might eventually kill you. Medically, you can't do that, but statistically, you can prove that exposure to radon gas and to the the dust particles containing alpha emitters and various other toxins that uranium miners are exposed to do have an increased risk of mortality and, and other health impacts. But the industries fought very hard. Firstly, they fought hard at lowering the dose thresholds, and there's a history of that around the global nuclear industry since the 1950s. And then they, they kind of resist any attempts uh, by their workforce to prove that exposure to ionising radiation in the workplace was what made them sick. So it's a, it's, it's a bad place to be. There's been some progress actually in recent years in at least harmonising and assembling an, a national dose register for people who've worked in that industry. But even then it's a long way from assembling that data set to being able to build a comprehensive picture of how many people got hurt. The folks that we prioritise because there's so few of them left during this election campaign with the atomic veterans and the Aboriginal people who were dispossessed uh, in, by the atomic bombing that the, that the UK conducted after the Second World War, uh, in which thousands and thousands of people were very heavily irradiated um, in terms of the service personnel deliberately and in terms of the Aboriginal populations of the area incidentally because they kind of couldn't be bothered moving them on. And it's a it's an extraordinary tragedy that's been unfolding. So we proposed a national compensation package, uh, immediate uh, gold card healthcare standard for the service personnel who were deliberately exposed to radiation and to fallout, uh, and a 
an immediate compensation package for uh, Aboriginal survivors uh, of of those um, of those weapons tests and their descendants. So we figure because these things happened such a long time ago now, the number of people are dwindling. There's actually only a small window in, into which to attempt to at least provide some justice to people who were hurt very badly. Hmm. And as far as the clean-up of those atomic sites from the British tests, um, I know there was a handback of the Maralinga Jaritja land a couple of years ago now, but what still needs to be done and and how is that site looking? Because I know there's been suggestions that the clean-up process has been done on the cheap. Well, that's my understanding as well. I've not visited the site, so it's actually not somewhere that I've been and seen directly, but the the way that it was documented at the time was that it turned out to be way harder than they thought it was going to be because a lot of the fallout is laced with plutonium and other fission products and it was immensely difficult uh, when it was sprayed across such a wide area. I mean, the radiation impact spread right across the East Coast. They picked it up in Adelaide. They picked it up, I think, as far north as, as Brisbane from some of the tests. But the immediate site impact... Uh, were to very, very heavily pollute the immediate area. So I think that we're obviously all in support of handbacks of country to people who've, who've maintained that custodianship uh, of country, but this is a, this is a poisoned handback. That area um, uh, in, in central South Australia was very, very heavily contaminated by those blasts. You've got a policy of the having a closure of ports to nuclear-powered or armed vessels and also the removal of facilities that enable the deployment of nuclear weapons. Can you sort of give us a brief overview of what the situation is at the moment in regards to, to those scenarios? Yeah, well, there's, so there's two things going on. There's two different arms of Australian policy that are in direct contradiction with each other and yet you can't get government ministers or senior officials to look you in the eye and admit that they're massively in contradiction. So one says, if you go to DFAT and you check out their website, it'll say Australia is in favour of a world free of nuclear weapons and we think there should be uh, you know, negotiations in a timely way on non-proliferation and eventually disarmament. And uh, I think most Australians are probably pretty proud of that. If you did a straw poll, I think most people would say, well, obviously we should be in favour of that. Well, when it comes right down to it, in the actual United Nations negotiations, particularly the last couple of rounds that kicked off in Vienna a year or two ago, Australia has played a spoiling role. We've played a saboteur role in actually trying to prevent um, productive negotiations on an actual legally enforceable ban get underway in the same way as cluster munitions or chemical or bioweapons. And so Australia is playing uh, a, a kind of a covert role of saboteur in those negotiations. And when you go to the defence white paper, you look at Australia's defence doctrine, it will actually say in black and white uh, that Australia should remain under the the US nuclear weapons umbrella. And what that means in plain English is that we are tacitly endorsing the use of nuclear weapons on targets in other parts of the world in the defence of Australia. Now, these are weapons of genocide. The threat or use of nuclear weapons was found to be illegal by an international uh, um, court ruling of a couple of years ago now, mid-1990s. And so what is that still doing in our defence doctrine? So one practical thing that we can do is what the New Zealand government did decades ago, which is to say, 
uh, our defence alliance, our our trade alliance, our diplomatic relationships uh, do not depend and are not underpinned by the threat or use of indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction. Uh, mass destruction. So these uh, ships can no longer transit these ports, and uh, and we need a declaration as to whether uh, vessels that are, or aircraft, for that matter, that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons are carrying them. At some point, you actually have to draw the line and say, we are opposed to the use, in fact, we are opposed to the existence of technologies of this kind. And we think that that is a, a very productive place to draw that line just to get started. Mm. Mm, thanks, Scott. We're uh, going to go to a song now and a quick announcement, and then we'll be back to talk more about that uh, US alliance in a second. Okay, we're talking with uh, Senator Scott Ludlam this morning on the Radioactive Show with uh, Michaela and Greg. Senator Ludlam, you just spoke before about the US alliance and, and the nuclear weapons. And I, uh, I saw a few months ago the video that went around uh, Facebook of you speaking to the Senate about the uh, lifeboat, the, the disarmed lifeboat and how we can disarm that. And uh, it's a great, uh, great speech that I'm going to put a link to on our webpage after this show. Um, Senator Ludlam, can I just ask why this issue that you talk about, you're talking there in the convergence of militarism, uh, climate change and the nuclear industry, why is it so hard for, do you think, in Australia for us to talk about this? That You know, you spoke to an almost any empty Senate chamber and in a seven-week federal election campaign, this hasn't even gotten uh, a mention. Just why do you think it's so hard? The empty Senate chamber things neither here nor there. I mean, they're not in there shouting at you, so it's actually <laughs> sometimes easier when it's quiet. Um, as to why it's difficult, I, I don't know. I think I said uh, at the time that election campaigns are dominated by very, very domestic concerns. You know, it's jobs and growth or it's tax or this or that. And the only time that foreign policy issues intrude into election campaigns is if you've got desperate people running for their lives um, uh, into Australian waters who are then kind of held up and used for election stunts by Peter Dutton. So it's a pretty undignified form of, of discussing foreign policy and what might be happening um, outside Australia. And the whole armed lifeboat concept is, um, is not something I came up with. Mm. Um, it's a, a remarkable book called Tropic of Chaos, and I presume he borrows the metaphor from elsewhere. He talks about the fact that the military, and the US military in particular, has done some of the most advanced and sophisticated thinking on what climate change is already doing to global security and to stability in different parts of the world. And the conclusion that they draw is that climate change is real, that uh, it is already unbalancing and overheating fragile um, regimes, particularly fragile post-colonial regimes in, in the tropics, and that uh, the US is going to need to adjust its defence policy to take account of that. But that's all very well until you realise that where that line of thinking leads, uh, if there's not an attached urgency about rapidly phasing out uh, greenhouse gas emissions, is nuclear-armed nations um, facing off against the backdrop of depleting resources, failing crops, shifting water patterns, mass migration of people, and these nations will be facing off in this incredibly unstable world with nuclear weapons. You just think, well, who, who thinks that that is a satisfying scenario? Who would dare to call that security or defence? We actually need to completely rethink Firstly, the amount of money that we spend on building these weapons for wars that we can no longer really, that, no, that nobody can any longer afford to fight. 
uh, but also the fact that we're not nobody out there is really the enemy we're all in mm. this together the planet is getting increasingly small overcrowded and overheated and so that armed lifeboat scenario really is a warning to say it's not enough for the defense department to recognize that climate change is real it's that a militarized response to climate change uh, ends up in a kind of mad max scenario that we shouldn't we shouldn't even contemplate driving ourselves into yeah, it's one of the th- important things to to note. I, I you know, in reading that, in listening to that speech, and uh, doing a bit of research, is that the U.S. currently has about uh, eight hundred bases uh, around the world, and uh, a lot of those bases are you know set up to extract uh, fossil fuels from the ground and control the flow of those. Is there, you know, any way forward for a, for a massive climate deal while we still have this major U.S. militarization in which Australia not only plays an active part but we support it with our military and political power is there is there any way forward is there any hope senator Ludlam? yeah I th- well i think there's, there's always hope i don't think any of us particularly in a country like australia have the luxury of sitting back and and saying everything you know, it's all going to go to shit i think whether we're the generation that probably gets to decide whether it does or not um the base footprint is kind of fascinating because there's no other country in the world that has anything even remotely approaching the u.s base footprint uh, around the world. A lot of them are very small installations that are able to be surged into or out of. So you get a, a place like the Port of Fremantle where there's no visible US military infrastructure, but they are able to surge uh, equipment, materials, aircraft and ships uh, through through Fremantle and through Pierce Air Base at very short notice because everything's kind of pre-prepared. All the way up to these huge installations like Okinawa or South Korea or or you know these other places around the world, um, and sure they they're, they're basically set up um, in part through historic contingency um, following the end of the Second World War or from previous wars, uh, in part to protect resource extraction, uh, in part to shore up alliances to contain China, whatever the kind of present doctrine is. Um, I guess one of the one of the most interesting uh, effects of the clean energy transition that's underway at the moment is that so much of 20th century and 21st century geopolitics was driven by oil, and maybe we're not going to need it mm. for all that much longer uh, at the at the volume that we do at the moment. I got to visit the Tesla factory in California the year before last, and they are making cars quite literally that can run on sunlight. Mm. Uh, they are much simpler to build they're great vehicles very few people can afford them but you can see that wave is about to break cheap cars that do not need oil and you have to kind of wonder what that does to this massive basing architecture which has really been designed to just shore up this fragile strategic balance in the middle east uh when countries like saudi arabia and and the and some of the emirates are busy designing these gargantuan solar installations because they know the game is nearly up as well. Hmm. So when will we see sort of solar-powered B-52s and solar-powered tanks to use in our upcoming warfare, Senator? Well, I don't think it can be done. And it's almost... It feels like it almost misses the point, doesn't it? Hmm. If the armed lifeboat is ends up being solar-powered, we still all end up drowning. I don't know that anybody's going to feel any better about it. You know, the U.S. carrier battle groups that they're experimenting with running on, on biofuels. And I think, look, unless those battle groups are entirely repurposed to just do disaster relief on small island states 
and help people get to safety, then I guess you could you could kind of see the point. But fighting World War Three with biofuels feels like a bit of a waste of time, doesn't it? It really, yeah. I don't think that would be fun for anyone. And on the theme of off-grid, you've been involved with work on a really comprehensive plan for the whole of Western Australia to go off-grid and um, for a really positive future. Can you just give us a little brief overview of that? Um, Sure. Well, we call it the WA 2.0 Project and it was an attempt to see, uh, to answer the question, what, what would a whole city look like not a little eco-village or a farm or a house, but what would a big industrial city look like if the Green Revolution really happened, if we won, if we got all the things that we're campaigning for? What do you get? What does it look like? So we started with transport. We started with um, an urban forest or a regeneration project involving Aboriginal elders. We started with affordable housing, with energy, with land use planning, with urban consolidation, with social services, and have gradually been welding all the different pieces together over the past four or five years to try and work out how they fit together and how we get there. So of all the work that we've done over here, it's that stuff that I'm proudest of because people really get it. There's a lot of visual materials that goes with it. We've worked with a lot of really interesting partners, including some odd allies like the Property Council and engineers and you know, people working in renewable energy, people working in all these different fields. And I love to bits where it's got to. It, it kind of it, it keeps us going. Everybody knows what we're opposed to, but sometimes it's harder to paint a picture of what it is that you're trying to build. So it's my favourite element of the work. Mm. Awesome. Cool. Well, great to hear and best wishes. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Sandra. You're welcome.